Well, good morning, everybody. The lights are going up. Uh, we're going to get started right away because there's, I, I just, one of the, when I was first started preaching, I remember praying, God, please give me enough to say. And uh, now uh, um, I'm struggling to say, God, please, I got to narrow it down. I got to narrow it down. And it's so challenging. And this morning's message, I feel it, I, I've got, I've winnowed it down to the best, but there's, there's, I've got a full 30 minutes. So um, buckle up and let's get going. So uh, as I was first, uh, a few years ago when we launched this campus, it actually hasn't been two years, but I was thinking about it and working on it a year before that. So I'm kind of in year three. You guys are in year two. I'm in year two, uh, year three of this. And I really became attracted to the idea of the early church and how the early church was able to exponentially spread the message and grow uh, in, in a culture that was not uh, welcoming or open to the idea of faith. Uh, this small despised movement from this small corner of Palestine was able to move out and become a dominant force in the Roman Empire, and a Roman Empire that was opposed to its spreading. Uh, so opposed that uh, it really was, the odds were stacked against this early church. The church was considered illegal. The church was considered a depraved religion, in a sense. And there, were, there was wave after wave of persecution that rose up against the early church in attempts to squash it. And at least two of the early persecutions were empire-wide, and they, their intent was to destroy the church. And yet this church continued to survive, and not only survive, but it thrived. It seemed powerless, it seemed weak, but yet it was thriving. I mean, think about this. This is fascinating. After the Apostle Paul, who, you know, wrote a lot of the New Testament, a lot of the letters that were written were written by Paul, after the Apostle Paul, we do not run across another big name in missions in the New Testament. There isn't another Paul. It was just Paul. After that, it was a group of ordinary, humble, nameless people who spread the message of Jesus across nations. Somehow it thrived when there were no buildings. They typically met in homes. There was no lights. There was no sound. There was no setup team. They just met in homes. They had no buildings. There was no government approval. They didn't have a community center that they were able to use. They did not have public ceremonies that they could invite people to attend on Sunday mornings. They had no access to mass media. There was no Facebook. They had no great financial resourcing. They had no social status. After they became separated from the first century association with the Jewish synagogues, they now had no institutional backing either. So how can we account for their steady and diverse expansion over the first three centuries? It spread through a group of humble, ordinary people whose names we don't know, with no buildings, no approvals, no resources, and no backing. Yet these early Christians thrived and spread the gospel around, literally around their world. Now, it began in some urban centers, and 
cities like Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi, and those were some of the letters that Paul wrote. Those were all influential cities where Paul traveled and shared Christ with people, and those people, those nameless, faceless, humble people of God, began to share the gospel. Most of those people in those urban cities lived close together in crowded tenements, and so their faith was seen living out every day that they lived. And so it was neighbors who saw their lives and saw their lives up close on a daily basis. These humble, ordinary people who were living out their everyday lives. And what kind of lives were they living that became so attractive? They were doing two things, I I would suggest. At least this is what I've seen in the readings in the first couple hundred years of the Christian faith, is that Christians became known as people who cared for the sick. That was one thing. They cared for the sick. Another thing is that they cared for the poor. They literally were the first people that started Meals on Wheels. In the Roman, uh, in the in the cities of Rome, in the cities of Rome, they were feeding more than fifteen hundred people a day. In Rome, this early fledgling group of people, who had no buildings, no resources, no backing, but they were known as people who cared for the sick, and cared for the poor. They lived their everyday lives, caring for the people around them. And they literally changed the world around them. Now, it wasn't just other Christians who shared about these things that they were doing. As a matter of fact, those who were opposed to the faith even noticed how these Christians were living. There was an emperor, Emperor Julian, who was opposed to Christianity. And he wanted, in in about 300 AD or right around the mid-300s, he wanted to reinstitute pagan religious practices. But Christianity had taken over. And he says this, it's up on the screen. He's an opponent of Christianity. He says Christians, Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. He says this, this spread because these folks are just being so nice. They can't stop being nice. It's a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And while those who belong to us look in vain for the help, we should render them. He wanted to model what the Christians were doing in their culture. And he found that they could not model it. They couldn't fake it. He tried to create institutional programs that cared for the poor, that cared for the sick, and he could not do it because you can't institutionalize that. It only happens when it comes from inside of you. And so we're in this series. How do we move from being religious to unreligious? How do we move from a faith about rules, right, about do's and don'ts, to a faith that has meaning and a faith that is about life change. And I think these early Christians had a few simple yet complex principles of life. Their faith and belief that Jesus was alive. They literally believed that Jesus was alive. Is that crazy? They literally believed that Jesus was alive. I was hoping for a response. Right? Yeah, they literally believed that. And they believed that this living Jesus was guiding their life life and lives 
they had a love for God that was evident in the way that they lived, and this new way of living was influencing their worlds. That's so simple, isn't it? And they experienced a change in their lives, and they began to share together. And they began to invite others to experience the same loving community. So simple. So simple that an emperor thought, we're going to copy that. We're going to trademark that. We're going to institute that, and we're going to bring back pagan religion in Rome. So simple, yet it was not possible. Because it has to do with what's on the inside. This change that took place in their lives. So a few centuries before this church movement that we've, I've just been talking about, Jesus taught about the difference between being religious and being unreligious. This is from Luke chapter 10. It's going to be up on the screen. I want to share this story with you. It's Jesus and another uh, person. He's a religious uh, leader. He's an expert in religious law. And it says, one day... An expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to, in, to inherit eternal life? Now, this guy was an expert in religious law. That meant that he was an expert in interpreting, teaching, and practicing the 613 Old Testament laws. That's what he did. He would interpret them, he would teach them, and he would practice them. He was an expert at this. He spent his life practicing Old Testament law. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? That would seem like a softball question, right? Like Jesus just lobbed one in to the expert in religious law and said, what does the law of Moses say? Jesus is asking him a little more than just what does it say. Jesus is asking him, how do you interpret the 600 laws of the Old Testament? See, there were Torah teachers. That was who this guy was. He was an expert in religious law. They could only teach accepted interpretations of the law. They were responsible for... for uh, so if I were preaching and I preached a, a law, in a sense, then Randy, the expert in religious law, would say, yeah, what he said, I'm on board with that. Right. See? <laughs> exactly. See, just like that, all right? There were those who had authority, the pastors or the rabbis. They would make new interpretations and they would pass legal judgments. And then the experts in religious law would say, yeah, that works. I see what they're doing. I see how they... So they would work in tandem, these two folks, these two groups of people. So Torah teachers would teach the acceptable interpretations of the law. And, and then someone would... Rabbis would go through and they would... They would adopt this practice, this principle, this way of living life, and they would say, this is how I live my life. And then they would take te uh, students along, and students would learn to live the practice of the rabbi. So Jesus is asking, how do you personally live out the law of Moses? What lifestyle do you practice? And so the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the expert had boiled down the essence of the Old Testament law as love God and love people. 
the same way that you love yourself. Love God and love people the same way that you love yourself. This was his summary of the Torah. That he was taking the Ten Commandments and the whole Old Testament law, the, all 600 uh, commandments, and he was summarizing them that we should love God and love people in the same way that we love ourselves. Love God and love people. It's an outstanding answer. It's really, really good. But how did he get there? Where did he get that answer? So I want to pause for a second and jump back to the Old Testament. We're going to jump back to Exodus chapter 20. And Exodus chapter 20 is where Moses receives the law of God from God. And we kind of have to look at some contextual things that are going around in Exodus chapter 20 to understand why the law was being given to Moses at that time and that place and those things. Why was it happening? There's some confusion. Some people would assume that the Old Testament law was given because God wanted to give out some rules, some do's and don'ts and ways to live life. And that he wasn't necessarily just giving out do's and don'ts and rules to follow. He was creating some culture. See, religious is about how do we follow the rules. I would suggest that unreligious would be how do we live this life. And so... God and Moses, and Exodus chapter 20, is God creating culture. The Israelites have been living in slavery for 400 years. The Israelites that were currently in the desert with Moses had never known life as free people. They had no experience of what it would like to be free, and we can't begin to understand what that would be like. But freedom at its best was a dream only to anybody. And without freedom, there's no rights, there's no privileges, there's no opinions, there's no decisions that you can make on your own. You are an enslaved people, and everything is determined by someone else. Everything. Everything. There's no days off. There's no personal time. There's no vote. And now God has this group of people who have never known freedom. And he says, this is the way you're going to live. We're going to create culture. And it's going to be culture that's entirely different than the Egyptian culture that you grew up in, in a sense, the only culture you've known before, where you were born as slaves and you were slaves with no choice. And so the first three commandments that God offers to Moses in this culture-creating moment are don't worship other gods. So unlike the Egyptians who had 2,000 gods, God tells Moses this, these people will be different. There'll be one God. You won't have to figure out which one to worship. There's only going to be one. Don't make idols. Unlike other nations, Israel's God would be different. God would not and could not be represented by an image. So you don't have to worry about worshiping things in this culture. 
And then the third commandment is don't misuse God's name. Unlike other nations, we will not have to manipulate God. God will just be God. And so in this culture-creating moment, God, through Moses, lets these newly freed people know that here's a proper view of God for us. It's a God who's different. It's a God who can't be contained by things. And a God that does not need to be manipulated. There's no confusion. There's no coercion. There's no man manipulation with this God. So we'll be a people that have a proper view of God. Then the fourth and fifth commandments come into play. The fourth one is keep a Sabbath. And a lot of people would assume that that has to do with God as well, but I believe keeping a Sabbath has much more, almost 100% has to do with us. God gives the Israelites instructions on resting. Now, in the 21st century, we don't need a lot of practice or instruction on resting. I know how to rest. As a matter of fact, every Sunday afternoon, I rest quite well. I know how to rest. But what would it be like to have been born in slavery, to have never had a personal moment to yourself, and to be told it's okay to just be? It's creating culture. Their value had been based on what they produced. And now God tells them, you have value in just being you. So you can just rest. And the fifth co commandment, honor your parents. Family life. Again, what's it like to no longer be slaves? While slaved, families could not be promised. Children were property and could be sold or given away. God says in this culture, we'll honor family. Because in the culture where you were a commodity at best, now you have self-value. Honor your parents not because of something done, but because of who they are. And so God is creating a culture a, with a healthy understanding of self. So there's a proper view of God and a healthy understanding of self. People matter. I matter. And then God goes on, and there's five more commandments. The remaining five are do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet what doesn't belong to you. Again, God's creating culture. This is a good way to live in community. Wouldn't you agree? Honest relationships are the best way to live in community. Trustworthy relationships are the best way to live in community. God is creating a way for these people to live in community. God's creating culture. Not religious, how do I follow the rules, but unreligious, how do I live this life? 
Now, the Ten Commandments have been taken so out of context that we've turned them into Christians who mean well, have turned them into this ideal way to live. I would argue that it was God creating culture for the Israelites. Today, Christians have made the Ten Commandments an issue, right? It's about having the Ten Commandments posted in courtrooms or having them posted or wherever you want to have them. And we've made this argument for the Ten Commandments. I love Erwin McManus. He quoted, he's quoted as saying this, the Ten Commandments are the lowest possible standard of humane living. It's the bar of humanity set at its lowest. Think about it. If you were to brag about the fact that you kept the Ten Commandments, what would you be saying? Hey, I've never murdered. Oh, congratulations, people, right? I don't sleep with anybody else except my spouse. Okay, good for you, right? Right? I don't steal. You can leave your phone out, and I'm not going to take it. Um. I tell the truth, and I don't wish I had things that don't belong to me. It's the bar pretty low, wouldn't you say? Right? It's, it's the, the bar. But why would the bar be set low? God is creating a culture. It's not the ideal to live by. It's culture creation. Somehow and sometime, we turned it into an ideal to live by. So the teacher of religious law gives this outstanding answer. He said we should love God, we should care for yourself or love yourself, and you should honor others and love others. Love God, love people, really is what he said. And then Jesus responds back to our New Testament story. Right, do this and you will live. Do this. And you will live. Now again, I'm going to state the obvious here, but it's my job as the pastor. Was this guy alive? Right? He's talking, right? We can assume he's alive. But yet Jesus says to him, if you do this, you will live. He wasn't dead and Jesus had to bring him back to life. He was alive. He's engaged in conversation with Jesus. But Jesus says to him, if you do this, you will live. As if his whole life he hasn't been living, but if, he, if you do what you just said, love God and love people, you will live. So then I have to assume, and I'm going to teach that you can assume this as well, is that there is a way to live without really living. And that maybe religiously following the rules is not really living life. And while this guy gave a great answer, we're not going to read the story, but you could follow along and see that his follow-up question to Jesus sort of helps us see where he was missing the mark. Because the very next story is the story of the Good Samaritan. And the reason Jesus had to tell that story is because the man who just gave this really good answer, this brilliant answer, and Jesus says, do this and you will live, he says, so who is my neighbor? Like, who do I really have to love? 
because I want to follow the rules. Are there some qualifications on who I need to love? See, so while he was able to summarize the rules, he still was practicing religion. When there's a way to live this life and really live, that's what I want to find. I don't want religious rule-keeping. I want to really live. And so this simple yet complex response of loving God and loving people is not rule-following, but life-giving. And it just draws me to some questions that I had to ask myself, and I want... I want to challenge you to ask them as well. If you're taking notes, here's the note parking part, uh, taking part. Question. How do we, parenthesis, the church, create a culture of loving God and loving people? How do we as the church create a culture of loving God and loving people? The first century church grew exponentially because of this culture that they had created in this pagan world. The same strategy works today. We are in this post-Christian world that is, has so many similarities to the first century that it's kind of eerily, uh, eerily scary how close they can be. So how can we create culture a culture of loving God and loving people. How can we create an attractional life? I said I was challenged by this. Uh, someone who attends the Voorhees campus um, uh, has a relative who goes to North Point Church in Atlanta. And if you know churches, you know North Point Church in Atlanta is one of the biggest churches, and it's pastored by Andy Stanley. I have been a fanboy of Andy Stanley's for decades. And I actually have some embarrassing stories that I have time to tell. Uh, and so, uh, so one time I was at Willow Creek Church uh, for a leadership conference. Uh, Scott Cruz was there with me. And Andy Stanley is one of the guest speakers. And we snuck in because I tend to do things like that. I break rules. And if it says don't go in, that means I'm, that's like an opening, open invitation for Rick to go in. So we went in and sat in the front row. They were doing a sound check and doing some things. And Andy came out and was doing his sound check. And I was like sitting right here. And Andy was standing right there on a platform. And the sound check was over and everything was all done. And you got to shake his hand. And so I went over and went, hey, Andy. He assumed I worked there. And he came over and knelt down. And I shook his hand and I said, I just want to thank you. Because when I was a, a young a young 20-something, I first got one of your tape. It was a cassette tape. And I listened to your talk and I said, it challenged me and inspired me. And I said, I still have that tape in my car and I still occasionally listen to it because my car still has a cassette player. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and so, uh, and so I said, I said, I, I just, I just love your stuff, right? That's how, that's the kind of fanboy I am with Andy Stanley, right? So I was sharing that story with some people and, and this guy uh, has a family member that goes to North Point and their family member not only goes to North Point, but is in a small group with Andy Stanley. I'm like, are you kidding me? That, I'm like, that is so awesome. So this week, he gives me a gift. It's Andy's new book called uh, Irresistible. And on the front page, inside with the title, he, it says, Rick, 
Be irresistible. Love. I put the love part in. Love. <laughs> Andy Stanley. So I was like, that is so cool. Thank you so much. So I was sharing with everybody the next day in the office because only church people would appreciate it. And uh, uh, I thought it was just the coolest thing. But then, it, so the book sits on my shelf now, and nothing's going to happen. with. I have a Randy Peterson signed book as well, by the way. I should have mentioned that. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but here's what, here's what I was looking at. I was going to take a picture and put it up on the screen, but, but then it really caught me off guard because it said, Rick, be irresistible. And my first... Uh, wisecracking thought was, Andy, you have no idea how, irres how irresistible I am. <laughs> but then I started wondering, what kind of culture am I creating? That's my second question. What kind of culture am I creating? So when my neighbors see me, when I'm at work, when I'm at school picking my kids up, when I'm at home, Am I creating an irresistible culture? Am I loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Am I loving God with my whole being? And what does loving God with my whole being even look like? Do I love people in the same way that I love myself? I've been trying to figure out what that looks like. And I, I only, I have this illustration. I think this helps. Um, when I'm hungry, it changes my agenda. All of a sudden, I am looking for food. And all the other priorities in my life have dropped down because food is priority. And so I see signs for Chick-fil-A. And I think, I've probably got the money for that. Or I run through the house and figure out what it is in the cabinets that I can eat. And that's priority. Why is that? Because I love myself. <laughs> and I love myself to feel good. And I feel good when my stomach is full. What if I had that? So that's loving myself. So how do I love people in the same way that I love myself? What would happen if I saw a need and it changed my priorities and my focus and I would not stop until that need was met? That's loving people in the same way that I love myself. So I mentioned the Old Testament, these commands were the bar set low, right? I think that's intentional. I think that was God creating culture for the Israelites. I don't believe it was the goal line. I believe it was the beginning. It was the starting line. And I believe that humanity has been commissioned to be culture makers. I mean, you could take it all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 when God created humanity and he said, uh, you guys go out and populate this. You're responsible for this. We have responsibility for it. And so you can see this culture-making process throughout history. I think Paul references that. And I'm going to close with these things. It's scripture from Paul's letter to the Galatian church. It's up on the screen. He says this, but, and I'm reading from the message version just for emphasis. But what happens, he says, 
when we live God's way. Now that right there is something you should circle. When we live God's way, all right, what's God's way? Jesus said, right, when the, when the expert in religious law answered, love God and love people, he went, right, that's good, do that and you will live. So we could say that loving God and loving people is God's way. So what, but what happens when we live God's way? Another way you could say it is that Jesus says that, you know, we're supposed to announce the kingdom of heaven is coming. We've talked about that, that God's reign is possible, that when, when God is in charge, then God's kingdom is here, right? So this idea of God's way is about us creating culture. So, but what happens when we live God's way? Paul goes on and says he brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. And then he says this, legalism or Rule following is helpless in bringing this about. If you're living that religious life of following the rules and do's and don'ts, Paul says it's helpless. It will only get in your way, he says. Here, try this at home. If you're married, say to your spouse, Honey, I love you because I have to. Yeah, try it. Yeah, you'll get smacked. Bob just got smacked. No, because legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only will get in the way. Paul goes on and says this in another letter. This is to the Romans. It's the same theme. He says, don't run up debts except for the huge debt of love you owe each other. When you love others, you complete what the law has been been after all along. The law code, circle that because the law code is what? The Ten Commandments we were just reading. The law code says don't sleep with another person's spouse. Don't take someone's life. Don't take what is in yours. Don't always be wanting what you don't have. And any, and any other don't you can think of, the religious life of do's and don'ts just doesn't work. He, finally, he says, finally, it adds up to this. Love other people as well as you do yourself. So when you are hungry next time and you're looking for something to eat, ask yourself, do I love others as much as I love myself? You can't go wrong when you love others. When you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. So there was this early church in the first century that was growing exponentially when everything seemed to be against it. Because people saw them living life differently. They were creating culture right around them in their neighborhoods, in their towns, in their cities. They were really living, not religious life, not a religious life filled with rules, but an unreligious life filled with a love for God and a love for people. They were living God's way. And they were creating this culture of loving God and loving people. And there was this irresistibility that was about it that changed their world. And I believe that is possible today. 
if we would choose to have that same kind of passion for God's love and that same love for people. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? And so, God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you, God, for the lives that are represented here. God, I thank you for this time that we've had to worship. And God, now I pray that we would be challenged, that we would be inspired, God, that we would even be convicted. God, that there are times that we're caught in not really living. There are times that we are caught up in rule following for rule following's sake. When, God, your call is for us to live life, to live it abundantly, you tell us. And that this love for God, where where our whole being is in love with you. And God, I'm not even sure what that even looks like fully. And that we have this ideal understanding of who we are in ourselves. And God, we can love others with a humble servant's heart. And that God, we have opportunity to change the worlds around us. God, I believe it's possible. God, you demonstrated it was possible in the first and second and third century, and the church grew exponentially. And God, I pray that we would see it again in our lifetime, that in this world that is so desperate for your love, that they would see it lived out in our lives, and that it would become contagious and infectious, and it would spread to the world around us. And so, God, we thank you for these things, and we Thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a great day.